0: Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. Today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Richard Brockman, MD, and we are going to be speaking about his book, Life After Death, Surviving Suicide. And this is an intertwined tale of a boy's world shattered by suicide and a man's story rewritten by neuroscience. Dr. Richard Brockman is a clinical professor in the psychiatry department at Columbia University. He has been honored with the Nancy C.A. Rosk Award for the medical student education by the American Psychiatric Association and with the Victor J. Teichner Visiting Scholar Award from the American Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry for his teaching. He is also a playwright and his shows have been produced both off-Broadway and on international stages. When Brockman found his mother's body, the simple narrative of his childhood ended. Life After Death tells the story of a boy who died and of a man who survived when the boy and the man are one and the same. It tells a very personal yet tragically common story of irredeemable loss. It tells the story of story itself, how story forms, how it grows, how it changes, how it can be broken, and finally, how sometimes it can be repaired. Now an expert in genetics, epigenetics, and the biology of attachment, Dr. Richard Brockman chronicles his evolution from a child overwhelmed by trauma to a man who has struggled to reclaim his past. He lays bare the core of one who is both victim and healer. By weaving together childhood despair and clinical knowledge, Dr. Brockman shows how the shattered pieces of the self, though never the same and not without scars, can sometimes be put back together again. All right. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Richard Brockman, MD. It's so great to have you here.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yes, and I really appreciate the fact that you are telling your story, your personal story, and it is intertwined with your uh, your teachings and your studies and your work. And so the the book that you've written is called Life After Death, Surviving Suicide. And, and I've been looking through the book and some of the things that stuck out to me were that this is a very readable book. I, I've interviewed a lot of doctors and professors and I think their books are great, but I wouldn't necessarily say that the average reader might want to pick it up. It might be a little bit dense. This is a book that is in my mind uh, a narrative style it's a uh, part memoir part reflection uh but then you sort of weave in science and little teaching here and there yet it reads like a novel so it's not just like a diary entry it's got dialogue and scenes and and places uh almost like you could like uh, sort of visualize a, a movie um but we're going over some very personal and uh traumatic material um, which was your mother's suicide when you were a young boy. Um, so I wanted to just start by kind of giving you the floor a little bit um, and talking about a little bit about maybe why you decided to write the book.
1: Um, well, again, th- thank you for that introduction and, and um, thank you for your um really informed description of the book. Um, I've my, my mother killed herself when I was seven years, two months, two days old, which I refer to as seven plus two plus two. Um, and it, it informed many or every aspect of my life. And, it, and to a certain degree, it ended the boy's life at seven plus two plus two, and it began my story at sort of almost at point zero, if you will, um, when that when it when she killed herself, um, and so I've been struggling with my identity and with my relationship to her and to who she is or was to me ever since I was seven plus two plus two, or ever since I was zero, depending on how you, which, which person <laughs> or which part of me we're talking about. Um, and I've tried writing this, I've, I've written plays, I, I've, I've, I've a, I write plays and uh, they're, most every one of them has involved some irreplaceable loss and just catastrophic loss, not necessarily of a person, but of something that was incredibly valuable and couldn't be replaced. And I knew I was writing about my relationship to my mother. Um, That informed just about everything I wrote. But at a certain point in time, fairly recently, a couple of years ago, I decided it was time to... um, to deal with it head on. And one of the factors that, le- that sort of released me to do that was that everyone, every character or person in my book is, or every principal character is dead at this point. And there are certain people in the book, my father, my stepmother, who, I gave, I I didn't tell their complete story and their complete representation to me. I told who they were to me as it was critical to this book. And I sort of didn't want a situation where I was writing about them, where they would call me and say, how could you say this about me? uh, Because it wasn't a total representation of who they were or who they were to me. And so I think the fact that Enough time had gone by. I was the, the freedom in terms of wasn't there was no one that, that I was going to insult or injure in writing this book. I didn't think, and also I felt for whatever reason that I had the the freedom to um, to really put my story out there. And as a physician and as a psychiatrist there are certain taboos against doing that. Um, But I felt that it was okay and necessary for me to do that. So that's kind of the the why now of writing this book.
0: Yes. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad you're breaking taboos because I actually think that uh, the more doctors that are open about their own experience, not only can that be good for the medical community to understand that they don't have to hide behind the white coat. They are people too. Um, I think it can inspire other both people and medical doctors to be open about their stories in a way that could be healing for greater parts of the population. So I think that's great. I mean,
1: this is a somewhat different topic, but there's no question that a physician or any doctors or any Person in a healing capacity, they have to be. They have to be, I think, open to their emotions, and and I think they also, by and large, this is not a blanket statement, but by and large, need to share, up to a point, their emotional reactions and their emotional experience. Um, it, it's a huge piece of the doctor-patient relationship. And it forms a huge part of how either well or not well a patient does. I mean, the the the, the bedside manner is not just sort of Marcus Welby on TV, or sort of ages me a bit, but it's it's not just for the TV sitcom. Um, It's a critical part of the healing experience, and and also whether patients are in in in. Inclined to trust their doctor and trust whether they should follow instructions and trust whether they should um, expect to get better. And hope is a huge component of the doctor patient relationship. And so the, the openness of a doctor to his or her emotion and to share that up to a point with his patient or her patient, I think, is a critical aspect of, of that. So that's a long answer to I felt okay in exposing this about myself and knowing that patients would read it, um, and they have.
0: <laughs> yes, that uh, that is a wonderful way to put it. And we see that in the literature, especially in the therapy profession, that the rapport between the therapist and the patient somewhat that according to certain studies makes up somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of the treatment effect and then the techniques are are the last 10 percent obviously in medicine (laughs) there there's different statistics on that but we definitely could see compliance with recommendations go up um people uh, wanting to follow up on their preventative healthcare type concerns, making sure they're actually going to their screenings if they have a good relationship with their doctor. So I appreciate that comment as well. So getting into your story, kind of a segue, I think would be the quote you actually had at the beginning of the book, um, Margaret Atwood. Once we had a language that included a past and a present and the future once we could think about what happened and transfer information to people about what might therefore happen, we were going to be telling stories. Could you reflect on that a little bit?
1: Um, I have this. I, I'm not alone. I, I have the strong belief that we homo sapiens tell stories. I'm somewhat alone in that I believe that animals, that all mammals tell stories. but. Let's not go there. That's going to get us off topic. <laughs> that, that Homo sapiens organize, we organize memory, we organize our thinking, we organize our paths, and we organize our sense of the future in a narrative, in a narrative construction, in a story, and that that this book, um, in addition to being as you generously sort of framed it as. A memoir as uh, as a as a as a, no, as a, as a novel. Um, it's it's also about it's also about story. It's also about the science, the, the 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 narrative of story and the and the neuroscience of story. So I very much needed to in, to inc- include the neuroscience of story. So in my sense, the book is not that much well not primarily about suicide, it's primarily about survival, resilience, story, the, the loss of story, and the reconstruction of story. And the critical aspect of, of uh, for trauma, for, as far as I view it, is that it, trauma attacks story, o- overwhelming trauma attacks story. And the, the task then on the the person who's the victim of that attack is to recreate his or her story, and it's not going to be the same story. It's kind of a it's, it's 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 going to be novel to a certain point. It's going to be a, a recreation of something different because overwhelming trauma tends to obliterate the story so that there aren't some pieces that are there that form the new story but by and large it's about the recreation of a new narrative and that was a critical aspect of my tale um, and I think it was something that Margaret Atwood was directly addressing in that quote.
0: Yes and for some of your story I mean there's a lot about the kind of the reconstruction and, and the, the resilience. So I think we should go there first before I go to some of the science questions I had about and sort of the story about your mother. But um, you had to essentially, like you said, day zero, you became almost a new person and you had to almost, you've had to basically start over in some aspects of your construction of the world and safety and who, and in fact, who is your parent, right? Cause you had these other people helping raise you uh, as you grew up. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about, I mean, that's a huge thing to unpack. That's why you have a book. So for the podcast, uh, What are some of the things that maybe helped you with surviving this and uh, and becoming resilient?
1: Again, my, I I was, grew up in the Sheepshead Bay section of Brooklyn, which is, it's right next to Coney Island. Um, And it's, it's somewhat isolated because it's, it's like a peninsula between the, Well, not quite, but almost the Atlantic Ocean and this bay. And for a boy, for me, (laughs) once I got a bicycle and could ride it at about age six or whatever, it was like I was the master of the universe. I just felt like, and and the whole world was that peninsula. And I, I was given the freedom. It was, you know, there there weren't many cars, or at least they were going pretty slowly. There was no, there was no where to, once you went on to Cheapside Bay, you, it dead-ended. You, there wasn't anywhere to go, so no one was in a hurry to get anywhere. Traffic moved slowly. And I had this freedom um, to to uh, just explore. And I felt like this miniature six-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old explorer, this adventurer, a conquistador. I, I didn't know that word then, but I've learned it since, obviously. And I sort of felt that way about everything. And then that crash—just in one instant, the whole thing crumbled. And part of the the, the part of the early creation of a narrative for a. a, a or for a neonate, for an infant, for a child, and for me in all those aspects, was you can't do it alone. You need someone else. It's like you've got one side of, 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 a, of a bridge, but the other side, there has to be another side to hold up that other end of the bridge. And for most of us, it's the mother. So when she killed herself, the bridge just fell into the, just collapsed into the gorge. Um, and so it was at that point that that was her suicide in terms of what happened to my st- story, what happened to me. And then the res- resilience was partly I mean, the biology of resilience, but part of it also was luck. I. There were some very strong women in my life, even as a six and seven year old, they were just part of the community, part of my world. And so when my mother disappeared and killed herself, there were three or four other women who were in in the community, in the neighborhood in my life to, to really help me as best as they could. And that, that was a critical aspect of my recovery. My resilience was the community itself, um, and particularly the community of these, of these women. Um, yeah.
0: So those women sort of, in a way, the community of these women, that in a way helped you build back a sense of self, a new sense of self? Is that what you were kind of getting at? I think
1: they allowed a, a new sense, a story to, to begin. Right. Um, and a, a new sense of self. I, I wasn't alone. I mean, even though I had lost the most important person in my life, I, I wasn't, and her her loss was up to a point replaced by my sister's by an aunt and by a neighbor. And the neighbor was right across the street. And it was kind of, I mean, again, they were all physically present as well as um, emotionally present for me. So, I, I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, they, they, the, the, the expression it takes a village. I sort of had a village. Um, I mean, I had a village before she killed herself, but I also had a village without her after she killed herself. And that was, and I don't know that I was conscious of it, but I was, I, I turned to them, I mean, just reflexively and, and they turned to me lovingly. Um, so it, it was a tremendous piece of my resilience it had nothing to do with me, but to, with the structure of the community and the generosity and love of of these women.
0: That is really a a touching piece of this story. And I actually, I'm gonna just for a second, use that to make a greater point, which is oftentimes in psychology, uh, folks wanna isolate the child from the family in terms of having a problem or having a trauma or having a depression or something or behavioral issues at school. And, um, essentially what you're saying is like, you turn to this community reflexively and they, you know, just out of reflex and they help nurture you and comfort you in the time of the worst possible thing. One of the worst things that could ever happen to somebody. Right. And I think that's a point I want to make for people out there in psychology world who listen as well as just your average listener that. Whenever something happens to a child, we have to look at their environment and their community and their family and set them up for success with those things. And then therapy medications are a tool to also help them. But therapy medications cannot be in lieu of an overall structure of family, environment, school, safety, belonging, connection. Connection and safety and belonging must be paramount in somebody's healing as we know I don't know who wrote this but there's something you could look this up isolation seems to make most symptoms worse in most people right now obviously being around really mean people could also make your symptoms worse right but but having that a healing environment is so pivotal to to recovery from any type of injury and you know uh, mental injury such as trauma, which is an injury, literal injury to the psyche, to the narrative, to the sense of self, all of that. Any thoughts? I, there? I think
1: there's the there's the instinct, if you will, and it's both self protective and understandable that after trauma you turn in that you and if, if your vision doesn't even extend across the room. I mean, it's just. Your, your vision and your sense of the outside collapses. And it, it, it was these other, these, well, again, my sister, my aunt, my neighbor, um, they didn't wait for anyone to make any suggestions, or they didn't wait for me to ask. They just moved in. I mean, literally and figuratively, with their generosity, their their protection, their love. And it it recreated a sense of safety, a biological sense. I mean, slowly, this is like over a long, long period of time, but a sense of safety. And that, the biology of safety after trauma, again, I was very lucky in that. I had this, these these pillars were there for me. I mean, you can say there were four pillars supporting my life and my mother was the most significant one, but there were three other women who I'd known all, I'd been there all along, I mean, ever since my birth um, and were there when my mother was no longer there. So they provided a, bi- a biology of safety.
0: Yes. And that's, that's very important um, to your story and to others who are suffering from trauma um, and po- possibly even post-traumatic stress from something such as this occurrence. Um, you talk about the story of your mother. It's very, you know, like a narrative story, but um, there was something you revealed here um you revealed postpartum depression uh also believed to she might have had a bipolar disorder it seems and and, and a, a number of treatments um that people were attempting to to help her could you talk a little bit about some of that how you were discussing in the book and the okay. importance of that
1: again this is um we're talking about the late 50s and early 60s when biological psychiatry didn't have a whole lot to say for itself um, and psychopharmacology had a lot less to say, um, the only treatment that seemed to work was electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy, um, which I, I, I... it, it works. I mean, I'm not, not for everyone, but it, it, it really does work. And my mother, I'm 99% sure that her diagnosis was bipolar depression, which has untreated bipolar depression. One in eight people commit suicide, which is, mm-hmm. that's a phenomenally high figure mm-hmm. in terms of morbidity and mortality. Um, I don't know if there is another disease that has that high a death rate. Um, So she had bipolar depression, and it was cyclical. It wasn't as if she got depressed and stayed that way from start to finish. She, seven years before my birth, she uh, had her first period, and she received ECT, and it was it was cured. I mean, she really recovered. And then she got depressed again during, around the time of her pregnancy with with me, and then was depressed after I was born. So peripartum and postpartum depression, which again, if someone who has Particularly, affective disorder, whether it's depression or bipolar depression, pregnancy becomes a tremendously a significant risk factor for the recurrence of the the basic illness, and it and it recurred. Um, and so, during my during her pregnancy with me, and then for quite a while after I was born, she remained depressed. Uh, I'm not exactly sure at what point she recovered. But somewhere in the first year of my life, she responded just, you know, without anything. I mean, just, she just got better. Um, and then in the last, then so for about six years of my life, but right, the first six years of my life, she was healthy. Mm. And then she got depressed again. And that was the depression that she'd never recovered from. And it, was, it led to her suicide. But at that point, it was the early 60s, and psychoanalysis had taken over psychiatry, especially in America, but to a certain degree in Europe as well, but really in America. And so the treatment for almost anything, almost anything psychiatric, was psychoanalysis. And that's what my mother was undergoing when she was entering not only a depression, but a, I, I believe, I don't know this for sure, but I believe a psychotic depression because but untreated bipolar depression, it's allowed to just roll along, more often than not leads to psychotic depression. And I'm fairly confident, and again, without any data, just but only it's on, on statistics, not direct data, that she had a psychotic depression. and That's, again, with untreated bipolar depression, that's often where it goes.
0: Yes, and also very difficult, especially back then with the treatments being limited. I mean, ECT, like you said, but electroconvulsive therapy. That was it.
1: That was it, I that mean, was it really. It, the, the tricyclics, the, the anti tricyclics antidepressants were just disc- were introduced in the mid '60s or mid or early '60s, um, and it wasn't as if they're were, they were introduced and suddenly everyone's prescribing them. I mean, it there was skepticism as to whether or not it, this was really a valid treatment. So, and and lithium was also around, but again, it was not. It was known, but it wasn't universally used. Um, and the heart, I mean, it, it was, wasn't used that much at all. So mm-hmm. really, the choice was really ECT or shock therapy or psychoanalysis or, or nothing. Um, and I think psychoanalysis was the worst of those three choices, at, at least for what she suffered from. Um, and... It was just not the right thing.
0: Yes, and there is a little bit more detail that you shared about one of the psychiatrists she did see. And
1: right.
0: could you elaborate? Because that that sounded like an issue with countertransference or, or not really, or, you know, quote-unquote bedside manner um, issues. Could well, you kind of explain some of that? I
1: mean i was i was would have been six years old and Mm -hmm. the circumstances were that i had that day every kid in the school received a polio vaccine because this was when every kid had to it was was, was polio vaccine was now being introduced universally and my mother i guess wasn't aware that i was coming home early because we got a we all got our shots and a lot of us cried and we were sent home. So I was six years old. I sort of walk in the door and she's heading out and she's going to see this man that I named Dr. Stein. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't know what his name actually was. Mm-hmm. I just had, I was, it was someone whom I really didn't like. <laughs> his name was Dr. Stein. So I named him Dr. Stein. Um, and I was taken to, to, Session, so I sat in the waiting room while she went in behind these two these doors and saw this doctor. And I, had the only doctor I knew of in that pretty much was in that building was my dentist, who I was terrified of. <laughs> um, and so I I sat by the door and you know kind of tried to figure out what was going on. And part of that what I describe in the book, it's a little bit of what I know was sort of happening. Part of it was what I know psychiatrists, particularly the card-carrying psychoanalysts, would say. And, and part of it was, as we say, this is partly a novel. I, I had limited data, but I, I knew something was going on there, and I knew she was in psychoanalysis. And I knew she was morbidly depressed. And I knew she shouldn't have been in psychoanalysis. And I know what a psychoanalysis would say when faced with depression. You turn to Freud's morning in melancholia and take out ideas that Freud had spun in the early part of the 20th century and say it or give it as solid data or solid evidence to his, his or her patients and um, it was it was just wrong. I mean, and it was destructively wrong because it made it added to people's sense the huge burden of guilt that someone with affective disorder and depression already feels. It just adds to it. So that addition, if you will, is what I created. that session that I describe in the book is not a verbatim. I don't know. I tried to get records and I tried to find actual substantive evidence, but it was like quite a few years ago. and they, They no longer exist.
0: Yeah. And, and, and sort of in the, in the novel portion where you're writing the dialogue, there was this sort of like really old school techniques of kind of like confronting her and like, what's your problem? Why are you doing this? When her, what, meaning like the depression, that's kind of like a very gross uh, way of saying it. Could you, is that what you were kind of getting at?
1: I was definitely getting at that. And I was also using, I had, again, part of my war with psychoanalysis was that I had been put I, I, I was sent for psychoanalysis, and, and the person that I had was a classically trained analyst, and I just thought he was just nuts. Um, and so I, I used some of what his style and his way of talking in this very measured, soft voice clouded with parliament cigarettes. I took some of the the data I had from him and gave it to my mother's psychoanalyst Um, and his reliance on Freud and his Freudian interpretations. And it was like, please. And, And I walked out of my treatment and I only wish my mother had been able to walk out of hers rather than to take a different form of exit. Um, so I, I, I had a lot to, to to fuel my, I had a lot to take out on psychoanalysis, both my, but also the fact that I, I mean, psychoanalysis didn't kill her, bipolar disease killed her, but I kind of blamed, not, not with justification, with emotional justification, but without scientific justification, I, I blamed dr stein whoever he was
0: Um, right and just for the listeners psychoanalysis was kind of the original one of the first forms of what we call psychotherapy today and it actually bears little resemblance in the techniques other than the fact that you're talking um to any sort of modern counseling or psychotherapy techniques because a lot of the confrontations the styles these like freudian theories and this sort of thing that you would like throw at people and this sort of free association um, with with little guidance uh, are are very outdated so we're talking right. about something completely different if you're wondering if psychoanalysis is that psychotherapy it not today's psychotherapy it's much different right. and we right. we've we've focused in the last 40 years on patient feedback right what helps the patient feel better and i'll tell you what and you can you're a person who went through it it did not make you feel better to go through the old style of psychoanalysis right. for most people
1: and one, one thing in psychoanalysis is defense. And well, there are a lot of things that sure. it, led to, it led to sort of a different way of looking at a patient, treating the doctor a patient, of understanding the doctor-patient relationship and what healing was about, is that in World War II, um it it, it really was the first a, a form of psychoanalysis or of modification or a transition of psychoanalysis into treating battle battlefield psychic trauma mm-hmm. um, it was success it was it was it was something to offer people who had suffered miserably during the war during the second World War and so it really did have a foundation of success but it was a, it was a very different form of treatment than what was the traditional psychoanalysis. It was a modification of it for the battlefield, for the principally soldiers who had suffered during the war, uh, in terms of what do we do to help these people. And it 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 was up to a point, it was it was quite effective and, and therapeutic. It's just that once the war was over and we we're into the 1950s, then it reverted back to the traditional values and and, uh, principles of psychoanalysis with the whole psychosexual theory and Freud's original ideas um, which were just that. They were ideas. They weren't ever proven. But they were interesting ideas without any basis as far as I'm concerned in in fact or in science. But they were great ideas.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it was exploratory and it i mean in i guess a positive thing unfortunately there's a lot of people in the wake that maybe didn't receive as positive but the positive thing is that it led to modern day psychotherapy because people said wait a minute i don't agree with that and they started looking at different theories and testing out different methods but yeah the original uh, the history is uh quite sorted you know especially going even back further to uh, who right. freud was learning from it was quite a quite a mess and uh, but it, but again that's in our modern lens we've there's been a lot of exploration and and testing um to try to help people and, and to find techniques that that work based on data not in not in theory
1: uh,
0: cool. uh, so um so yeah i'm glad that you you know we talked about that uh, the book you know from what i've been reading is, is is quite intriguing again because it reads like a novel um there uh, before we kind of get back to you because i'm going to try to loop back to you and your personal experience i i wanted to just just talk for a moment about this sort of cultural there's multiple cultural issues you brought up um in the book um one was this like you said you know talk about your father uh, the psychobiology of pride uh, the psychology of will and and uh, should those fail, there'd be a psychobiology of denial. All of those were entwined in my father's ascent to the pinnacle of the American dream. Kind of like really working on that American dream, you know, coming from uh, where he was before. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: I, and that, again, I said earlier, I, I really did not. This is I, in the book. I characterized my father in a certain certain. It wasn't fair. It was unidimensional. There were other aspects of my father that were incredibly generous and loving, and you know, I, I loved him. Um, but what I say in the book is from a different perspective, and that was he came to America in like 1920, sometime in the 20s, and he was the eldest son from a Polish shtetl. They spoke mainly Hebrew and a little bit of Polish. So they got to America. They got to Ellis Island. None of them spoke English. None of them were particularly welcomed. I mean, um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism and or a lot of Jews you know, facing pogroms. Obviously it wasn't, they weren't facing Nazism just yet, but they were facing a lot of anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe, especially. So they came here in the 20s and he, at, at the age of twelve, kind of became the head of the family, and that I know there are any number of scenarios like that where it's not the father who's the paternal leader of the family. It's often the eldest son. The father, and this is true of my grandfather, was stuck in the old world, old world traditions, old world religion, old world so just devotion to religious ideas and just couldn't quite grasp that he was he wasn't on a shtetl anymore. He was in New mm. York and he was at Ellis Island and then he was in Brooklyn and he had to make a living. And it was my father who kind of became the head of the paternal head of the family at age 12, 13, 14, 15. He was the first to learn English, the first to go he was just the leader. And um he became very successful, and it was all his theory was bootstraps. You pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and that's that's the way you deal with things. That's the way you deal with life. You don't ask for help. You just have the fortitude to get better. um And his attitude towards his wife, towards my mother, was just, "Come on, get what is." Get out of bed. Stop weeping. Stop this self-criticism. Just, just stop it. And he wasn't—he wasn't cruel or he wasn't uh, angry, but he was just impatient and couldn't accept that with her effort and with his help she would get better. Mm. That was his belief. And when she didn't. It hurt him deeply. And then when she killed herself, I think it crushed him. Because I think he adored my mother, his wife. I'm, I'm convinced of that. And her, her her death by suicide was such a slap. Not by her, but just by his weak, As he saw it, his failure. Mm-hmm. He, he mm-hmm. failed. And he had never failed before. And this was a catastrophic failure for him. It was a catastrophic loss for me, but it wasn't, I didn't feel as if I'd failed. I think it was a loss and a failure for him. And so he couldn't talk about it. And indeed, he didn't talk about it. And he never talked about it. I mean, he never talked to me of, of, of my mother ever again. It was as if she didn't, hadn't existed. And that was his way of dealing with it, that with total denial. And the fact that I might have needed him to sort of comfort me or at least acknowledge what I was going through and what he was going through, and to share his loss with my loss. I mean, we had something in common to share that was very, very powerful and incredibly important to both of us. And I couldn't go to him. And I was, it became I don't exactly know how I knew, but I knew I couldn't go to him. And maybe because he never approached me ever. Um, And that continued. And it, it was whoever didn't know that she had committed suicide. He would never tell. It was like absolutely not told. And even if he knew that someone knew, like my neighbor, uh he, he wouldn't. It, 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 the word was not used. It just was not part of our vocabulary. Um, so that is not particularly unusual. Um,
0: oh yes, especially for that cultural time and viewpoint. I would say that's actually quite the norm. From what um, I had a multiple personal experiences um, and also just reading books about the culture at the time it was um quite common in fact my grandfather who was, came over on ellis island around the same time as your father his wife died tragically um through a medical problem when my dad was young and about a year maybe six months after she died and it wasn't suicide but it was a medical anomaly or whatever they it, it was as if she had not existed yeah. like they they, 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 they the trauma and the, the guilt and, and what do we deal with this like it was it was just kind of put away and left to the children to kind of sort amongst themselves right and right. that mentality of of you know and i think about it from a trauma perspective you know your father could control really well his businesses and his his you know things with those rules that maybe he was in but when you come to a personal relationship you can't control the other person right and 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 then let alone something like that happened and then how do i share the grief and, and comfort my children likely he wasn't taught that right i mean it, like you said your, your grandfather was buried in religious traditions and and growing up in the way he did uh the world was changing right around the time big i mean of course it's always changing but it was very much changing the shifting um, when you were a child in the 50s, from this sort of like grand narrative where religion was kind of the main thing and government, you know, and businesses were secondary to like businesses and government kind of being, you know, in this kind of postmodern thing, and religion was not as prominent as far as I can see in the United States ad hoc history that I'm sort of generalizing. Yeah. <laughs> but is that kind of <laughs> makes it's a sense
1: fair there? generalization, and also there was the stereotypical family where the father went off to work and worked and the, and the wife stayed at home and took care of the house and, and the made dinner and took care of the children. And yes. it was very separate functions. There was never any overlap. Um, the, the father was never sort of the, putting us to bed or stuff like that. He, he just didn't. My mother right.
0: did. It. it was a different time.
1: That was normal. It was he wasn't it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It wasn't neglect. It was right. just the way things were done. Um, and it all worked well until it crashed.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's good to to lend context to the stories and i think that's the beautiful thing about stories and the tragic thing but also the beautiful thing for people to learn from previous generations how did they do things in general what were their customs and then the thing about your story is you've lived through massive world shifts not only you know the 50s and 60s when you were growing up is a massive shift the internet has completely changed the world in so many ways in the past 30 years or whatever And I I think it's I I think that's an interesting perspective to have seen all this change and then be able to write your personal story as well. I think that's very useful for the readers and and the culture at large.
1: I think if I could, I mean, the Internet is getting us into well into high adulthood, but um, the. The internet is not particularly comforting. <laughs> no, <laughs> and if I mean it, well, at least it hasn't. It's been a great source of data, and information, but I wouldn't say it's ever been a particular source of comfort. And in a tragedy or in a crisis, we need comfort. Is kind of critical. You, I mean, interpersonal comfort. Whether I mean, well, just other another sentient living being. Yes. Um, and it's it's a lot more than data because data is it gets to a certain part of your brain. But it, when you're when you've been significantly injured, you need you need comfort.
0: Hundred percent. I mean, just in a ad hoc comparison. Um data is hard to feel, information is hard to feel, emotions and stories and sharing and belonging. Can you can feel? I mean, that's why um, I'm a huge proponent of um uh, trauma-specific modalities that have emerged that are combining talk therapy along with these sort like, of feeling mind-body techniques like EMDR therapy and somatic sure. experiencing. So you have the talking relationship, but you're having the client really focus on the way they feel when accessing traumatic material. And it's phenomenal the changes you see in clients versus even when i started my career i was using primarily talk therapy and i did i was like what do i say because i worked with kids who had lost their parents you know and and been uh, uh, orphans you know in the system they call it the system you know um, and I, how can I comfort this kid? I can't, right? I'm a guy who sees him an hour a week. Uh, and not that EMDR is the answer to that either. Obviously, community and connection was was paramount. But um, mm-hmm. with the adult patients, it really has helped to get into that feeling. But again, if they just go back to a place in their life where they're isolated and not having those personal connections, they don't do as well. Um, even just go to the, the basics of uh, that, like the support groups and AA groups. I mean, people, it saves people's lives to have that connection. If they, Especially if they don't have the connection at home or in their community to go to these to these groups. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. And the internet can only help us kind of get there sometimes.
1: Well, it, it, it gets, I mean, AA is a, a terrific example of a community where stories are told And people listen to each other's stories. And it gets back to what Margaret Atwood's quote. And my belief that if you want to change someone's mind about something, tell them a story. Don't give them not an argument, but a story. And that's the way I think people's minds change. And I think that, again, I was lucky, very lucky in my late teens to uh I mean part of my story is that I was just acting out like mad during my ado- late adolescence and at college it was sort of a I was sort of headed for another crisis but I was directed towards this woman who she is an analyst so I'm, I'm I mean she's a, a a changed analyst from the the kind of psychoanalytic treatment that my mother received. But it was at Austin Riggs, which is a fairly famous psychiatric hospital in uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which was near the college I went. And I was sort of told if I didn't go there as an outpatient, that I was going to be slumped out. So I went. And it was this uh, woman named Margaret who's Mm. She was the first... Tenured professor, female tenured professor of psychiatry at Harvard. Wow, Um, she was a big deal in the history of psychiatry, and um, and I was fortunate enough to have been sent to her. And again, she allowed my stories. She allowed me to talk to to talk in stories, and she allowed herself to talk to me in a structure of story. So it wasn't this isolated interpretation. And she was an analyst. She was a psychoanalyst, but she was she was trained by Eric Erickson and he was a colleague of Eric Erickson. So it's a very different world than someone who was a colleague of Freud's and was trained or believed in Freud. I mean, it was a huge modification that psychoanalysis went through into becoming uh, a treatment of interpersonal growth where it, 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 where there's two people in the treatment, not one, um, and, and she very much was in that that belief that that that, that improvement and, and growth in therapy involves two people, not one person listening, the other person talking, and once in a while that, a comment. She, she was very engaged was critical for me in terms of pretty much stopping most of my acting out, which was a huge search for my, for my mother. It was somewhat crazy.
0: Well, I mean, trauma, like you said, it blows up our world, blows up our narrative. And oftentimes the way we're trying to adapt is through acting out, um, you know, different For instance, an easy example is just drinking or drugs that people maybe overuse because they feel horrible, right? That's an adaptation from trauma or, um, you know, distracting themselves endlessly or uh, getting into awful relationships. I mean, oftentimes, uh, you know, I I worked with kids who didn't have fathers at home and they would join gangs at 14, 13 years old, partly, I think. I'm not going to say for each one of them, but kind of looking for a father figure, looking for someone to look up to, to give them an organization. Their mothers are busy at home with the children and and uh, working multiple jobs. You know, they couldn't do everything. So I think, uh, I appreciate you telling this about the, the acting out, but uh, you found healing from someone through a relationship, a deep a relationship. Sounds like she was a very uh, ahead of her time uh, yeah. psychoanalyst.
1: Yeah, she was this was the
0: late 60s oh yeah definitely so
1: definitely
0: yeah um i want this brings back a perfect segue back to you so yeah i mean i think i think it's great in our culture if we can have um men and women you know and anyone just tell their story especially being a person who's who is a doctor uh, yourself and and uh, as as teaching and you've taught um how has writing this book, uh, let's go with, helped you first. I have two okay. questions. Let's go, how has it helped you?
1: Um, well, one thing about writing, I mean, when when one writes a memoir, the story is about yourself, and you sort of begin it sort of thinking, well, okay, I know where it begins, I know where it's going to end. Therefore, there shouldn't be too many surprises because I've been there, done that. And what was fascinating to me was that there were a lot of surprises and a lot of things I didn't realize or perspectives that I never really saw suddenly emerged. So Mm -hmm. on one level, writing the book gave me a lot of information about my father, about my mother, about my life as a as a boy, and about myself that I really wasn't aware of. And it's like it was kind of a tremendous surprise to realize how little I knew about all of the above. Mm-hmm. Just to say how little I knew about my life, I had lived it, but never, I never mean, the life unexamined. I, mean, it, I just had never put pieces together and realized if I got from point A to point D, then B and C must have happened, but never really thinking about B and C. And it was things like that, where I may have known certain certain big events, but the the space in between was, I I never really thought about it, but I sort of reconstructed it Realized that this act- these things actually happened, which changes your perspective uh, on, on your life as you're going through it, as, you, as you're writing it. So it was a huge amount of examining my life in a way that I had never heretofore done um, and seeing it in a way that was really a surprise. Um, which, and it's those moments of surprise that allow for emotional reaction. And when you have an emotional reaction, you have the capacity to really rethink and almost reformulate, not almost, to reformulate memory, an emotional connection to an old memory brings it back in a way that biologically, it can be reconstructed. And a lot of that actually happened, A, with with Dr. Brennan, and then B, in in my writing the book, a lot of those memories got shaken up, made emotionally alive. And then it's that emotional, the biology of, of of, of emotion that's alive of a memory that's alive, it, that allows you to really reconsider it in terms of, did I, did this really happen or was it somewhat different? And it's not that I came up with memories about things that I didn't know about, but it was about perspectives about the past that I had never really considered. And those shifts of six degrees, five degrees, whatever, they're, they're subtle. But they're enough that they're, it's like, wow, that that allows me to think differently about who I am. And I mean, I go into it in the book, but I do believe that the past can change. Um, and it can change. The past is nothing but memory. That's what the past is. It's not some solid piece of rock that exists 300,000 years ago. It's um, it's memory. And memory can change. And the book allowed me to rethink re- and to re-feel emotionally memories and to s- shift them slightly, which was major.
0: That actually sort of answered my second question, which was, well, both, sorry. What I want to say was it was a wonderful answer, but it answered my second one as well, which was how is this book changing you? And maybe you've got more to say, but I feel like it, right there, I feel like there's some healing going on.
1: It's huge healing, huge. And again, I'm not a kid. I mean, it's not as if I've had other experiences to try to heal, but this, I think, healed me more than perhaps any other experience, I mean, or at least it's up there with other experiences in terms of of healing. Um, And I think one of the questions that drove me, particularly in my adolescence and early twenties and much of my acting out was, how could my mother have done this to me? What was she thinking? What was wrong with her? Did she really mean to do this? And all these questions that I had for her. And I think that that's sort of the, the, the surface phenomena of what, what was driving my life and, and or driving the narrative as I was seeing it at that different points in my life. And I came to real, and this sort of seems like, you know, like a, of course, kind of observation, but that my mother was really dead. Mm, yeah. Her soul, as far as I was concerned, was not up there waiting for me or or waiting for my questions so that she could answer them. And my searching for her was I mean it was like Don Quixote and, and you know Jake, you know, going after windmills. I, I, I had a this fantasy of her and of her continuing existence that she I was going to find a way to force her years after she was dead to explain herself to me and it was the acceptance that I and mean, again this seems like this isn't a huge revelation but that she's dead her soul doesn't I mean I that if it exists, I'm, I was keeping it a, a, a prisoner, and I was I released her soul to go wherever it needed to go. I was never going to be able to call on it again because she was dead, and therefore her soul was wherever it was was not hanging around me anymore. And there was a tremendous freedom from the, that event. And it, one can say that seemed sort of like an obvious thing to, to, to take away from this book, but it wasn't. It, it was allowing her to die, allowing my seven-year-old self to die, and, and allowing myself to just let go of all that. And... we tell my story.
0: Yes, I mean that like you said it it's may seem like a simple concept but I think that the concept of trauma that's actually one of the most difficult things to do is actually face it head on and to face on the 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 cold reality that you were living in and I think searching for things some things are uh, you know innately traumatic and and some traumas are can be resolved if there is another party to help you resolve it, but your mother could not help you resolve it. And therefore there's a huge gap that you and no one else could actually step you into that. They could help you, they could nurture you, but this is a soul quest or a a personal quest that you you had to accept and make peace yourself with her her Mm -hmm. passing. And the fact that the seven-year-old who loved the world and loved his little bike rides and being with his mother was gone also.
1: And I think that's a critical point, which I think you put better than I did, in that she was my partner in my story up until she killed herself. And I didn't have—a boy, kid, someone who's suffered trauma, whether it's a youngster or—it doesn't really matter— but if you've suffered significant trauma, you need someone else to help you deal with what's ever happened. And the person I kept looking for to help me deal with it was my mother, mm. and she was dead, so I had to create some form of some form of weird narrative that kept her alive. And it it kept me, it kept my relationship to her alive, but in a really pathological way and forced forced quote unquote forced, but drove me towards behavior that was really unhealthy or pathological. And the book became my mother, if you will, the other side of that, the other side of the bridge, the other, the other pylons on the other side of the river mm-hmm. that held the bridge up. The book became that and allowed me to let go of my mother as the, those pylons that I needed on the other side of the river. Um, and it was, it just, I mean, I kind of remember the moment when that was happening in, in writing the book. And it was also at the moment when I realized I was going to dedicate the book to my mother. To, to, it, it's dedicated to Ruth, it's my mother's name. And I was aware that I was dedicating this to her because I was no longer searching for answers, she wouldn't give. I was no longer angry with her. I just I forgave her and released her, and that became a huge. And the book became, to a certain degree, embodied. My aunts, my my sisters, my the other women that had been there for me, my the village, my mother herself, and and, it, and my father, and it just became that other person that a child we all need in terms of upholding our story and, and, and valid and making it valid.
0: Yes. That's such a key. Yeah. I mean, you summed it up right there. Just our story needs validation, especially when you've gone through a trauma, but just as human in general. And I, I am, I love how you put that and, and all the, like you said, your sisters and the lady across the street and your aunt, you know, you wrote, I was never alone. And I think yeah. that's an element as, you know, practitioners and you're a doctor and, and the therapists that listen to this podcast. Um, how do we help people be less alone in their suffering?
1: It, it's, there isn't, it's a huge question. There is not an easy answer.
0: No, no,
1: it really isn't because it's not as if, well, up to a certain point. Well, it's not as if there's an easy answer, and 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 our role, your role, my role as healers. There's there's a there's a limit to how much we can be that other person. Um, we we can't be be a hundred percent. It's just it's too much. Oh no. Oh no. Um,
0: I would say the question is probably unique to every person but as a clinician. I think it's something to keep our eyes on because yeah. it's something, if we can move somebody towards a community or a helper or a healer in their own natural environment, or, you know, to seek that out outside of the doctor office, outside of the therapy room, I think that's a, a very key point. So, um, yes, getting a little bit to the, to the end here. Um, Obviously, this book is, I think, for, worth reading for people out there that have gone through it uh, or people that are curious about the material. Um, it reads like a story. You don't have to be a scientist to read this. Uh, I, I think it's. I think people are really going to enjoy it. Um, what are some of your goals uh, for the book or uh, the outreach or, or anything going further, Dr. or Richard?
1: Well, I, I think what... What you said, I mean, I I wrote this really, the main goal in this was addressing trauma and story and how to a certain degree trauma weakens or destroys story. And then it becomes a question for for the person who suffered the traumatic, the trauma, to find a way to recreate story. And it's really about story, both the biology of story, the biology of trauma, traumatic story, the biology of recreating the story, as well as the narrative of all of the above. But it's about story. Um, And I needed the neuroscience in the book for my telling, because to a certain degree, I was explaining my own story biologically to myself as I told the story narratively in the book. And that's partly why the book for me had to include both the narrative structure as well as the biological structure. And I think the book is for anyone who's curious about narrative and and about how trauma affects narrative and the reconstruction of narrative, biology, biologically, as well as psychologically. Um, And obviously for anyone who's been through it, that as well. Um,
0: Well, I think that, I think that's great. I'm I'm looking forward to people. This is one of those episodes I think people share with their family and friends and network. So I, I think, I think it being so personal, um as a podcast host it's interesting some of the science episodes don't get shared as much as the personal story episodes and I really think people are going to enjoy this and I really uh I want to thank you for your honest authentic deep answers uh to the questions I asked and obviously drawing on an entire book of material here it's it's clear to me it's interesting uh I wanted to kind of point this out for our listeners You've got all of the, you know, you're a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry, but yet you are using your whole brain here as much as we can. You're, you're, you're writing uh, plays, books, uh, artistic, and I, I really want to inspire people out there, especially in the field. A lot of people in our field listen to this. We got to get creative, too, and I think that can, our creativity even if it's not within our field, hopefully within our field, but also outside of our field can change lives. And so I I wanted to thank you for doing that.
1: Um, Well, thank you for digging deeply to the questions you asked. Um, They were very, they were helpful. And again, I I was struck by uh, some of the questions actually were surprising to me that you asked, which meant that you, also uh, look deep into this, these issues. Um, and that was very helpful and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, and, and I think you're right. It's, I, I think there's a creative aspect to the work that we do that needs to be recognized um, and needs to be part of what we do, you and I as, as, as clinicians. Um, in terms of how we work with people, there's a there's an aspect of of creating something new in the in the in the in the interaction, um, and that's creative.
0: Absolutely, uh, I I love that you're you're putting it that way. I feel like that is a perfect note to <laughs> end our podcast for today so i am going to make sure that i have all of your information for people listening you can go on the internet right now and on your on your phone or your computer and you can look below the podcast and you will see a link to um richard's profile uh, uh, at the university uh the book how to get the book and other cool tidbits like that so i appreciate your time
1: well thank you very very much i really appreciate this opportunity the night the night is yours
0: This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24 7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de escalate them and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form i've said it before and i'll say it again if you are a therapist and looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services check out therapist LLC.com. that's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com billing services created by therapists for therapists If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal. So register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss, and his guest. And while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organization, such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week.